Uncaged. Uncaged. A show celebrating thought leadership from today's top business leaders. The program provides a voice to amazing executives from around the globe who are shaping the world of business today and mapping the path to the world of commerce tomorrow. And now, please welcome our host, Bant Breen, as we begin another Uncaged episode. Today, we're speaking with Azadine Downs. Hey, Azadine, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. And we'll be talking about the world of nonprofits, um, conservation. Azadine is the president and CEO at International Fund for Animal Welfare, sometimes going by the acronym of IFAW. So if I use that, that's what I'm referring to. But uh, before we get into what you're working on now at the International Fund for Animal Welfare, Azadine, tell me a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. So uh, I have been with IFA for 25 years now. This was uh, my anniversary year. Um, before that, I worked uh, with the Peace Corps. That's where I started out my career. So I've always been in the international uh, fora, if you will. Um, Peace Corps, I worked in Morocco, in Yemen, in Bulgaria. Uh, I then went on to work for the International Agency for Development, USAID. Uh, I was in Jerusalem. And so I've been all around the world. And in 1997, I, I um, got the opportunity to join IFAW when it was really just beginning to go through a transition from a founder-led organization to a professionally managed organization and uh, seen lots of changes and really been proud to lead the transition of the organization. Now, IFAW is an incredibly important operation. My understanding is one of the world's largest playing in the space of conservation and animal welfare. But tell us a little bit more about what IFAW is right now. Yeah, so the one thing that makes us truly unique is that we have two pillars. The first pillar is rescue of individual animals, and the second is conservation. And so if you look across the landscape of nonprofits working in this area, typically they're on one side of the house or the other. They, they work on rescue of individual animals, but they're really not working on the larger landscape issues of conservation. So what we have done uh, and what makes us unique is that we do believe in the intrinsic value of an, of an individual animal, that all lives are important. And on the conservation side, they have to have a place to live. So historically, if you look at conservation, it was typically about population science and right. you know, how large a population was and whether the population was healthy. And there really wasn't all that much concern, quite frankly, uh, about the individual animals. But with a lot of the science that has changed over the years, and we work a lot on elephants, for example, we know that there are family units who react to their environment and to their situations, just as people do. Right. So that, that is really what makes us unique of putting those two things together uh, and, you know, changing the way that people look at uh, organizations like our own in the nonprofit sector. So tell me a little bit more about just the definition of how you look at conservation today. Certainly looking after, I imagine, the biodiversity um, for the animals, but what does it look like out there in the field? 
You know, I think one of the most important things that we try to get across to people who support us and people who need or want to learn more about us is that biodiversity is, is really about the health of the planet. And how we know that is through the lives of the wildlife and how clean water is and how clean the air is and how healthy the soil is. And these sometimes get, um, the message gets lost in scientific data, mm. but you know, like a, like a canary in the coal mine, you know, that was <laughs> the whole idea, right? That bird is going to tell you whether the air is clean or not. Yeah. If people begin to look at um, the planet that we live on as, as something that it's not an option to let it go bad, mm -hmm. right? You're thinking about the population of, of wildlife, but in essence, if you're, saving, if you're saving an elephant, if you're saving wildlife, you're ultimately saving ourselves. So you get right. people to see that they're part of that ecosystem, that they're part of biodiversity, as opposed to just managing it. And, right. and I think it's a real shift in how we, how we look at things. When you talk about climate change, for example, oftentimes the discussions focus on uh, reduction of emissions, which right. is critically important. There's very little or no discussion of how biodiversity can actually be part of the mitigation strategies to, uh, to change climate change. So as opposed to being just a victim right. of climate change, and people are a victim of climate change, and biodiversity is a victim of climate change, uh, I'd like to change that narrative so that it's part of the solution. Biodiversity, a healthy planet, healthy wildlife, it's part of the solution to saving the planet and mitigating the, the damages from climate change. Yeah, I like that. And it certainly is a more holistic way of approaching the model and something that doesn't kind of get bifurcated in an unnatural way. But I mean, when you look out right now in the landscape really of animal welfare and the areas that you're focused on, what are you seeing out there? What are the key trends right now? You know, sometimes people don't like when I say these things, but um, animals will take care of themselves if they're <laughs> left alone. So yeah. what is the real problem? The problem is human behavior, Yeah. right? And some of the biggest challenges that we have uh, in whether it's um, illegal wildlife trade, poaching, uh, the sale of wildlife on, on you know, cybercrime, mm -hmm. all of these things are driven by money, right? Yeah. So the challenges, the challenges that we face are not really coming from the animals themselves, the wildlife themselves. It's, it's what people want to do with the land. So I would right. say number one thing is land use. Um, try to boil that down into a message. Are you willing to share the planet? And sometimes it sounds like a very fundamental question and an easy question, uh, but when I ask it, sometimes I get the answer is no, I'm, I'm not. Right. I'm here to make money. And right. You hear that at international con uh, conventions all the time. I'm here to make money. And I'm not really concerned about the planet or the next generation. That's a really negative <laughs> way to look at the world. But I do hear it. 
so if that person says, no, I'm not willing to share the planet, I feel like there's not a lot I can say to that person. Yeah. If someone says, yeah, I'm willing to share the planet, then we can talk about land use, uh, the encroachment of human populations into wildlife space. So the second, the second major uh, challenge there is, is human wildlife conflict. So, you know, in the work that we do uh, with Room to Roam, which is one of our biggest initiatives to mm -hmm. connect 12 critical landscapes across Africa so that elephants can move and other wildlife can move. So we, have, right. we, we focus on the elephants because they're, they tell the story better and they're keystone species. So people know elephants. The number of people increasingly killed by elephants and other wildlife is the major problem that I uh, discuss with politicians. And so again, shifting the narrative, oh, well, you know, the elephants or the lions or the bears, and this is true in the US too, the bears are coming into our neighborhood, the lions are coming into our neighborhood. That's not actually what's happening. It's yeah. the reverse. It's the yeah. Reverse. That's a tough sell for a lot of politicians. And so when it boils down to is, how are we going to keep people safe whilst mm -hmm. keeping wildlife safe? So this is really what we focus on with community engagement. And when we talk about communities, what I'm really talking about is people that live with wildlife. And again, it's one, education, two, um, change of behavior so that they are safe. They are yeah. safe. Because if, if, if we can't save the people who live with wildlife, we're not going to save the wildlife. Yeah, no, it's a really good point in finding that balance so that, as you rightly stated up front as a dean, trying to find a holistic approach to the model where people are part of that. <laughs> people are going to be part of that ecosystem, right? Absolutely. So completely makes sense. So we've been living through quite an interesting moment for all of us, for humanity with the pandemic and now a little bit of economic uncertainty, maybe a little bit of war as well. Trying to get a sense here from you. How has that impacted your operations and perhaps offered maybe challenges and maybe even some opportunity? Yeah, it was a huge business challenge. And I think that at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of concern about what would happen to revenue. So, mm. you know, the business side of what we do is just like any other business is that you have to have the revenue to save lives. So that's what we focus on. Uh, early on in the pandemic, I did three things. I said to the staff worldwide, I'm going to keep you as safe and as healthy as I possibly can. Um, secondly, I'm going to keep you employed. This is not an economic downturn. We don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to do everything I can to keep you employed because your employment means saving lives. And then thirdly, we're not going to abandon the people on the front line. So the rangers and the rescuers who are actually in the field. The problem with the economics of conservation relies so much on tourism. So mm. to give you an example, some national parks in Africa rely 100% on tourist revenue right. to fund the rangers, to fund the operations, the vehicles, the, um, the patrols to stop poaching. They lost all of that revenue. So one of the, one of the um, unexpected outcomes of the pandemic is that I think there's now serious uh, conversations about the economic model of conservation has to change. Right. There has to be a commitment. It can't be a private sector endeavor. 
it mm -hmm. has to have governance behind it to make sure that it that it uh, is successful. The other interesting thing about you know the lack of tourism also meant that wildlife had more room to roam, right? You don't have the tourists running around. The flip side of that was it turns out that in some instances poaching actually increased because there weren't as many people around to keep an eye on on poachers. Mm. So whilst the animals in many places were left alone, and we saw all sorts of videos about you know wildlife going into towns and villages yeah. around the world, yeah, um, uh, and quieter spaces even for marine mammals going into places where they weren't before. Uh, but the flip side of that was a lot of the money that goes into conservation from private donors and and tourism was lost. Are you seeing that come back now, Azadine? Yeah. You know, we were lucky. We were lucky, I think, um, by reaching out to our donors early on to let them know honestly what was the challenge that we were facing. And the number one was we were concerned that if we didn't have revenue, um, we wouldn't be able to pay the salaries of rangers and mm. frontline rescuers. So what we saw was that um, our donor base continued to fund us. And in some cases, we had donors who actually increased their donation because they knew, like everyone else, that there was so much uncertainty. And you know, for us, again, it's donations. So if someone supports us financially and they lose their job as a result of the pandemic, they're not going to be able to fund us. Right. And so you know, we were we were honest about what it is that we were trying to do and that we would focus on those three things. And I think the reaction was very, very good for IFAL. It wasn't so good for many other organizations. A lot of nonprofits suffered and many closed down. Yeah, no, I've seen the challenges and I'm hoping that we see new models up here to make sure that the work continues for a lot of these critical activities, certainly the work that your organization is doing. But let's put on the Nostradamus hat for a second, Azadine. Here we are in 2023, looking at a new year with a new set of challenges, as we all see. What are you excited about? What are you seeing on the horizon? You know, there's hope. There is hope. And, you know, a good friend of mine, Jane Goodall, she focuses on hope. Uh, she's got a book out about hope. Don't give up hope. And I, I really believe in this. So mm -hmm. you look at all of the information that comes out about the demise of the planet, you know, whether it's all of the storms that we see, <clears throat> the weather patterns changing, the number of species that have been lost. But one thing that we did learn in the pandemic is that nature will bounce back. Yeah. And I think that we have good examples of that. So, you know, the message that I really want to give to people about looking into the future and, and especially for young people, don't get overwhelmed by the negativity that you might see in the media. You know, the media does focus on um, the most dramatic news all the time, right? If it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> but do more research, reach out. You know, we have a lot of information on our website, uh, ifod.org, to give you hope that there are things that you can do. And what motivates me personally is I just refuse to accept 
that I'm going to be the manager of the demise of the planet. Yeah. You know, the tipping point, there's books out there, the tipping point. Whether or not we're at the tipping point for climate change, there are things that we can do. Do not mm -hmm. give up hope. I love that. And I think that if them reaching out to your organization, they can learn a little bit more. That might be a first step to embrace that idea of hope here. Azadine, it's been amazing talking to you today. Thank if you. someone wanted to learn more about what you and the International Fund for Animal Welfare are doing, where's the best place to reach you? Yeah, really, we have a great website. I think it's ifaw.org, ifaw.org. And there's tons of information there. There's tons of content. Uh, we have social social media platforms on Instagram. And you, you just see great animals doing their thing out there. And they're very informative and um, find a way to support what we're doing. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on Uncaged today. We've been speaking with Azadine Downs. He's the president and CEO at International Fund for Animal Welfare, also known as IFAW. IFAW works to involve communities in addressing problems in conservation and animal welfare through their 15 offices and projects in over 40 countries. Azadine, thanks so much again for being on Uncaged. We look forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much. Cheers. Cheers, then.